Last Lord's Day, we were looking at 1 Peter 3, and we saw some important things I'd just very quickly like to review. In verses 13 to 18 of 1 Peter 3 last week, we saw some things about ourselves and also some things about our wonderful Savior. What we saw last time about ourselves is that we are to chase down good. We are to go after good with gusto. We are to be seeking good and then running toward good, the good that God has prepared beforehand that each of us should do. Second, we saw last time that there will be rare times when we as blood-bought children of God will suffer for doing what's right. We ought not to think it odd. In fact, we ought to think it a privilege and a special time when we suffer for doing what God says is right to do or being what God says is right to be. We can see that as a special and a precious time of setting Jesus Christ apart in our hearts as Lord. You will find no better time to set Christ apart in your heart as Lord as when you're suffering for doing what's right. We also saw last time together that we are to be students of the Bible such that we can give hope, a reason for the hope that lies within us on the drop of a hat. And I challenged you last Sunday, if you were here, to come to Sunday school today. Did you? It's alarming to me how few of us take up on Sunday school, but you can change that next Sunday. Because Sunday school is another time when you can be equipped in God's holy word to give reason for the hope that lies within you. Don't miss that opportunity, please. Last time we learned, still on ourselves, we learned that we should strive to have completely clear consciences before God. That happens when the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, of omission or commission, sin of thought, word, or deed, when we sense that conviction to go to our knees, to admit it to be sin to God, call sin, sin, by name, be specific, not some shotgun blast confession of sin, but rifle shots for specific sins. Lord, when I said that, I was sinning. I was gossiping, I was slandering, whatever the case might be, we should strive to have clear consciences before holy God because we're up to date in our confession of sin and we're keeping short accounts with God. That's what we learned last time about ourselves. We also learned some wonderful truth about our Savior in verses 13 to 18 last week. Namely, we learned about our Savior last week that Jesus died for sins once for all. He does not get crucified and crucified and crucified like our Roman Catholic friends believe in their Mass. Every time a Roman Catholic Mass is observed, those leading it and those entering into it believe they're re-crucifying Christ. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus died once And it was enough. We also learned from last time that Christ's substitutionary atonement, Christ dying in our places like Glenn sang of, arose, was trampled underground on our behalf. We believe that the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is radical. We never would have thought of it if we gave it any thought. And it is distinct to the biblical Christian religion 
that we have a substitutionary, atoning Savior. No other world religion has that. Furthermore, we believe that substitutionary atonement of Christ did not leave his body in the grave, that the Father raised him to bodily life after death to show that our sins are paid for in full. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Romans 4, 25. Also about Christ, last time we learned that he is the central focus of all the Bible. Now I come to, with you, to 1 Peter 3, verses 19 to 22. <laughs> These verses are some of the most difficult verses to accurately interpret in all of the New Testament. These verses are the Super Bowl of hermeneutics. These are challenging verses, but with God's help, we will seek to understand them, not for the sake of understanding them, but for the sake of putting their truth into our lives. The challenge before me right now as your pastor to preach 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, reminds me of the Nobel Peace Prize winning physicist who went on a speaking tour about his quantum physics theory. And he had a chauffeur, and the chauffeur and the physicist went all over America giving the same talk. The scientist stood up every night and gave the exact same talk on quantum physics. The last night of the tour, the the scientist was asked by the chauffeur, how you doing? And the scientist says, I am exhausted. I'm tired of giving this talk. If it was up to me, I'd walk out and go home to my wife. And the chauffeur said, well... I've heard every talk you've given. It's the very same talk. I've got it memorized word for word. Doc, why don't you take the night off and wear my clothes and I'll take your clothes and I'll stand at the front and from rote memory, I'll give your talk on quantum physics. How would that be? The scientist said, you think you could do that? He said, yeah, I've heard it 30 times. So that chauffeur got up there, the people were none the wiser and he gave the scientists quantum physics lecture perfectly. Word for word. But then he made a mistake. He said, now, would there be any questions? (laughs) Of course, his hand goes up in the back and asks this extremely technical question about quantum physics. And the chauffeur said, oh, that's such an easy question. I'm going to call on my chauffeur to answer it. (laughs) So I kind of feel like I wish there was a chauffeur in the back Maybe a seminary professor or one of you that it really is a good uh, interpreter of scripture, but we're going to do our best. I've asked the Lord to help me, and I've asked the Lord to help you before we get together today. And so to understand verses 19 to 22, we got us jump in at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which... Also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but and appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Do you see why it's the Super Bowl of Bible interpretation? And so to answer some questions of the text, I have to raise some questions of the text. In order to do so, I want to point out that here, first of all, it says that Christ was made alive in his human spirit in that he was restored to fellowship with his father after the father turned his back in the night sky of Palestine when he bore our sins. And so after Jesus Christ had paid for your sins and mine in full, and the father had turned his figurative back on the son, and nature was sympathetic with the Palestinian midday heat and sunshine turning jet black as night, after that, Christ was made alive again in the spirit. And that temporary turning away by the Father as Jesus bore our sins was ended. And now we turn to verse 19. And as we do so, I want to ask ask the text two questions. I'm asking verse 19 two questions. And the first question I'm asking the verse is, where did Christ go? Where did Christ go? The second question I'm asking, verse 19, is who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? Who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? Two questions. Where did Christ go, and who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? I have four possible interpretations that would answer these questions differently. The last interpretation, verse number four, is what I believe. But I'm going to give you three ahead of what I believe so you understand what others believe. Interpretation number one is this. Christ preached in the days of the apostles. Christ preached through the apostles to persons who were in spiritual bondage at the time of the apostles. In other words, this interpretive thought is that when Paul preached, say, to the Corinthians, Christ was preaching to the Corinthians through Paul back then. Now, this is not a far-fetched thing, because let's take Ephesians 2, verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So we ask of this verse I've just read in Ephesians 2, 14, Who is the he referring to? Well, clearly, it's Christ. For Christ himself is our peace, etc. Now, let's skip down in Ephesians 2 to verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So similarly, we asked of 14. Let's ask of 17. Who is the he referenced here in verse 17? And again, it's Christ. 17, and Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So watch this. When did Christ preach peace to the first Ephesian church? Well, when the apostle Paul preached to the believers at Ephesus. That's when Christ preached. So there's a precedent in this particular interpretation, one that we could acknowledge But going back to 1 Peter 3.19, the problem with this first interpretation is that it's highly unusual to refer to living persons as spirits. I don't call you a congregation of spirits. I call you a congregation of persons, believers. 
It's highly unusual in the New Testament for living persons to be called spirits. Furthermore, the New Testament also doesn't refer to living persons as spirits so that I don't go with that interpretation. So when it comes to where did Christ go, who are the spirits to whom Christ preached, I go to interpretation two next. This interpretation says that Christ preached through Noah, historically, to people who disobeyed God back then, and these disobedient, non-believing persons died in a worldwide flood, so their, their spirits are now in prison. That's the second interpretation. And the proof that's cited for this interpretation is taken from 1 Peter 1, verse 11. 1 Peter 1, 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So here in 1 Peter 1, verse 11, it's teaching that it was the Holy Spirit who was actually prophesying through the Old Testament prophets. Yeah, that's no problem with that. And so those who hold to interpretation number two say that Christ was preaching through Noah before the flood by having the Holy Spirit guide Noah's mouth as he preached to his peers before the flood. But I think there's a problem with that. And the problem, I believe, with that interpretation is that in verse 18 of chapter 3, Christ is put to death. In verse 19, Christ went to some prison and preached. And in verse 22, Christ went back to heaven. That's chronological. Christ died, Christ preached, Christ went back to heaven. But to hold this second interpretation, you have to get things out of chronological order. I mean, it's this. With this interpretation, it would be first Christ died, second Christ went back to Noah's time to preach to those people, and third, Jesus went back to heaven. In my humble opinion, when you break the chronology of it, it doesn't make sense. So, I don't hold to that interpretation either. The third interpretation I'd like to explain to you is... Answering, remember, answering the question, where did Christ go? And who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? And interpretation number three goes something like this. Christ preached to dead spirits. In other words, between the cross and his resurrection, Jesus preached to dead spirits. Jesus, in this view, went to Hades or to hell in order to preach to these dead spirits. Now, some who hold this position say that Christ went to Hades to preach the gospel to Old Testament unbelievers or ones who had never heard the gospel. And in this view, if any of those dead spirits believed the gospel when Jesus preached it to them after the cross and before the, before the ascension, they got a second chance to believe. And they went to heaven when they believed. Others with this same interpretation said, no, it wasn't that he went to hell to preach to those that were unbelieving of the Old Testament. They say, others say, Christ went to Abraham's bosom and preached to Old Testament believers. 
And this view says that Christ evacuated a place called Abraham's bosom and took believing persons who were already there and already saved to heaven. Well, I have a problem with that. Neither a second chance for salvation after death nor an evacuation of Abraham's bosom is preached in Scripture. And so we've come to three interpretations that sincere, Bible-believing Christians can come to. But I want to share the interpretation number four that I believe that is most congruent with, with Scripture and the things we know about uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and, and so forth, salvation. And so to answer the question, where did Christ go? And the question, who, to, who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? Interpretation number four says this, that between the cross and the ascension, Christ visited the realm of angels, fallen angels, who are bound in a specific place called Tartarus. Now, this special group of demons or fallen angels in this special place of bondage, we get some window into who these demons are and what these demons did when we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, we read the following. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that's another expression for people who were following God, believers, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So these, there was a, a, a subset of believers in God, but then More specifically, there was a group called the sons of God who were possessed by certain demons to do a certain diabolical, evil thing. And so we've got multiplication of people. We've got population growth. We've got attractive daughters who are seen to be beautiful. And these sons of God, these uh, fallen human beings possessed by certain demons, took wives for themselves, multiple wives, polygamy, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit, capital S, my spirit shall not strive with men forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So this fourth interpretation Where did Christ go and who are the spirits to whom Christ preached? This position says that Christ visited a special place, a realm of demons who are confined, a place called Tartarus. And these special confined demons in Tartarus are held in bondage because of how they possessed human beings in the account of Genesis chapter 6. Had those human beings lust after multiple women, marry multiple women, and God was fed up with it, and in part, that is why God sent the global flood. And so these particular demons in Tartarus possessed the human men back at Noah's time and prompted them to sexually take many wives, and subsequently, of course, children were born of these unions. And this demonic perversion, this polygamy, was one of the main reasons that God decided he had to destroy 
all on earth except Noah's family of eight. Now let me tell you a couple reasons why I think this fourth interpretation is the one that I would go with. First, the word spirits used here normally, typically, usually refers to angels. Be they good angels or be they rebellious evil angels that we know as demons. So in the first place, the common usage of the term spirits with a plurality is for angelic beings, either good angels loyal to and serving God or fallen angels who are demons and doing Satan's bidding. The second reason I favor this interpretation is if you go to 2 Peter 2 verse 4. 2 Peter 2 4. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now, that is not Hades when you look at the Greek. That word from the Greek, which is translated hell here, is Tartarus. Different place. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, that is the English version says hell, and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Tartarus is this Greek word behind our English word hell here, and Hades is not the word in use here. The typical word for hell is Hades, but this is not the word being used in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. And so apparently some fallen angels, a particular group of demons, are now presently, currently confined by God in a place called Tartarus. Not all demons are currently there. But the demons of Acts, excuse me, Genesis 6, those demons are in Tartarus for God's own reason. When you go to Jude, uh, verse 6, the case builds. And angels, that is certain fallen demon angels who did the, who did the evil of Genesis 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, that's Tartarus, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So stick with me. I'm telling you that I believe that there's a place of confinement for a certain class or group of demons that involved the sin of Genesis chapter 6, polygamy, largely polygamy, and God has banished those particular Genesis 6 perpetrating demons in a place called Tartarus for God's own purpose, for God's own reason. I believe that both 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 refer to this special class of demons who are described in Genesis 6 in a place called Tartarus. And so I believe that what happened was that the Lord Jesus Christ, after being taken down from his cross and physically dead, between that time of his cross and his bodily resurrection, he went to Tartarus. Why? God knows. He went there to announce something to these particular demons. Why to these particular demons? God knows. And what did Jesus Christ announce or proclaim or preach to that special class of demons in Tartarus? That his defeat of Satan was binding, complete, not at risk, sure, 
Done. Done. This was the same, precisely the same binding victory which John chapter 12, verse 31 records that Jesus Christ predicted before the cross. When our Lord is recorded there in John 12, 31 to have said this, and I quote, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. So when Jesus went to Tartarus to speak to those confined demons from Genesis chapter six sin, he said, it's over. (laughs) It's over. You're not getting out of here. I win. Then, still before the cross, in John 16, verse 11, we see a further light thrown upon what the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed to those specific, unique, confined demons in Tartarus. It quotes that Jesus Christ is saying this before his crucifixion, and I quote, the ruler of this world has been judged. Wait. Jesus hasn't died on the cross when he said that. Jesus hasn't shed his blood when he said that. Nonetheless, Jesus Christ before the cross, in anticipation of the victory that would be his over Satan, said, the ruler of this world has been, past tense, has been judged. That judgment, that victory of Jesus Christ over Satan was so sure in the mind of Christ that before the cross He didn't say, I will defeat him. He said, he's defeated. That's sure. Well, having tried to explain to you four possible interpretive options for verse 19, and having told you in humility why I believe the interpretation I believe, we're ready to go on to verse 20. And if you think you're out of the woods interpretationally, In verse 19, you go back into the woods in verse 20. Verse 20. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So I have a question of verse 20 that help us understand what it means, I believe. And the question of verse 20 I have is, how long did the patience of God keep waiting in the days of Noah? How long did the patience of God keep waiting in the lifespan of someone who didn't believe in God or serve God at the time of Noah? And the answer is from Genesis 6, verse 3, that we've already read in this message, 120 years. Genesis 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. I'm going to contend with an unbeliever for a lifespan of 120 years. That's what he gets. At best, that's what he gets. That's what she gets. And so God said that he would stop striving with wicked, violent rebels of mankind after maybe they each got 120 years of life. Then after that time, the patience of God was exhausted and God sent a justified worldwide flood to destroy all those persons and animals who were not inside the ark. Now, let me ask you, church, 
if our God, resplendent in holiness, was patient with non-believing rebels and gave them, as it were, usually, typically, ordinarily, 120 years, should we not be patient with our boss? who is so unreasonable to us because we're a Christian, because she's not yet saved? Should we not be patient with our son who's heard the gospel? He grew up in this church. He's heard the gospel of Christ, and he's living for Satan this morning. Should we not be patient and prayerful and loving? Should I not be patient with my neighbors? Last night they were playing God dishonoring music at full blast till the wee hours of the morning. Not my neighbors on either side, my neighbors behind our house, way behind our house. They could have been at Fox Hill, the music was so loud. I don't know where they were. But should I not be patient with whoever they were, wherever they were? If God is patient with the the generation of Noah to give these people 120 years, I must be patient. The second observation from verse 20 is this, that only a few were brought safely through. That's an understatement. 20 who were who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, that is eight persons on the globe, eight people on earth were spared. Eight. Those who are brought safely through to know God and to live with God and to love God are few. You do know that, right? That we will always be a minority. We who are Christians will always be a minority. Oh, we know theologically and practically speaking that although we numerically are a minority, when the spirit of God takes up residence within us, we're the majority where we work. We're the majority where we live. We're the majority where we do business in our influence. But numerically, concretely, actually, headcount, we are the minority. Jesus told us, in case we might miss that, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus' words, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. The crowd that's on the road, the plenty of people on the road are on the broad road. The problem is it leads to destruction. It leads to hell. Are you on that road? Don't justify the viability of the road by looking around and seeing there's plenty of people with you on it. You know, that whole thought I hear from people who are so ignorant of the scriptures who say, I want to go to hell, it's a party, and all my friends will be there to party with me. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. Implication, only a few people will trust Jesus to be their savior. 
Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, but there are few who find it. You talk about a narrow road and a narrow gate, it's this narrow and this uh, constraining. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Everyone who won't go through Christ, they're going somewhere on the broad road and through the broad gate, but it isn't heaven. Only a few will believe in Christ and be saved. And the vast majority will choose consciously, decisively, purposefully to reject Christ for their own reasons. This fact should not discourage us from sharing our faith. We're commanded to share our faith. We must share our faith. If you are on a vessel in that deep channel on the northwest side of New Providence that's something like six miles deep, the water there, and if you're on a vessel and you're safe and you see someone flailing around in that water and they do not know how to swim and they do not have a life preserver, you don't turn an eye and say only a few are going to get saved. You throw them the lifeline. You throw them Christ with humility, with prayerfulness, with love, but with directness. Don't beat around the bush. The person in the sea who can't swim with six miles of water underneath them doesn't need you to beat around the bush. It needs you to throw them a life preserver. And not to do so is to be criminally negligent. That's why we send missionaries, because we don't believe everybody's all right. We don't believe everybody makes heaven. So we send missionaries to tell them about Jesus. When we go to verse 21, just when we thought we were out of the interpretational woods, we go a little further deeper in here for 21. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. What? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been asking questions of these various verses, so let's ask ourselves three questions and ask the verse 21 to answer each of the three. The first question is this, corresponding to what? It says, and corresponding to that, we have to ask, to what? And corresponding to what? And the answer is, verse 20 has just told us that we are to understand the corresponding to the what is to salvation which God brought to the family Noah through the ark. That's what's been talked about the previous verse. Second question of verse 21. What saved Noah and his family? The water or the ark? Well, that's a ridiculous question. What saved Noah and his family? The water or the ark. No, the water was the problem. The ark was the solution. Third question, what saves people now from sin and self? Christ or water baptism? 
When I help young people to get ready to be water baptized, it's one of my favorite things, and I role play and uh, pretend I'm not their pastor. I'm just a friend at school who doesn't know anything about anything to do with the Lord. And I ask them various questions. And one of my favorite questions to ask as I'm getting into the process with the young person who wants to obey Jesus in water baptism, I say, is it, is it holy water in the tank? Is it magic water that washes away sins? And they look at me sometimes. I say, you know what? It's neither. It's just Nassau tap water. (laughs) It won't save anybody. Can't even drink it. When our children were born, uh, it was well before social media and personal computers. That shows you how old I am. But when our two children were born, we were so excited. We were so grateful that we wanted to let as many persons as possible know that they had been born. And so we put a newspaper ad in our little town's paper in the birth announcement section, and we said that Joanna Beth Elliott was born on, on March the 15th, uh, 1993. So she had her 25th birthday last Thursday. Hard to believe. That newspaper article never caused Joanna to be born. It merely reported the fact she already had been born. Similarly, five years later, when J.D. was born, we did the same thing with the newspaper birth announcement and said that Jonathan David Lee Elliott was born on February the 4th, 1998. Such and such a place. That never caused J.D. to be born but it reported a fact that he already had been born. It was completed. Their births were completed when we put the notice in the newspaper. We were just proclaiming something that already had been done. When we get into a baptistry of water, as we should, by the way, we're commanded to do that after we trust Jesus for Savior. We're commanded to do that. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a personal first step of, of going on record to be held accountable to fully follow Jesus as Lord. But just like the newspaper ads didn't cause our children to be born, but announced that they had been, water baptism doesn't cause anybody to be born again. That's already been accomplished. That's why they're announcing it, going public with it, saying, hold me accountable about it. Verse 22. Now we're starting to come out of the interpretational woods a little bit. Referring to the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. You know what that is in paraphrase? Jesus has won. Jesus has won. Jesus has won, according to this verse, over angels fallen and good angels over authorities. Jesus has won. And Jesus has won over powers that oppose him. All of those things have been subjected, put under Christ. I don't know what you face this afternoon when you go home. It's been subjected to Christ. I don't know what you face on Monday morning when you go to your jobs. But it's been subjected to Christ. I don't know what you face when you go to your doctor's appointment this week and you get the scan results or the MRI results or the PET scan or whatever it is. I don't know what you're going to face from your doctor this week, but whatever it is, it's subject to Christ. 
And I could go down the list. Jesus Christ has won. And because Jesus Christ has won, and because we are in him, we have won. And so would you do me a favor? (laughs) Do me a favor. When I ask you how you are, just occasionally, will you give me a non-body answer? How are you? I've got a headache. How are you? I didn't sleep well last night. I'm tired. How are you? I've got this going on. I've got this going on. It's like an organ recital. And I can be the same. But instead of giving a body answer, why don't we start to be a church that gives a a spiritual life answer? How are you today? I am justified. How are you today? I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How are you today? I'm a victor in Christ. How are you today? And so I ask you, how are you today? And before we go into our cars or get on our jitneys and go to our places of of living, would you tell somebody how you are today before you leave the campus? And don't mention anything about your health. As a man thinks, as a woman thinks, in their heart, so they are, right? So let's think about all of the wonders of this passage. A difficult passage, probably the most difficult passage in all of the New Testament, in my opinion. But God has seen us through it. I hope that he's helped me be clear and humble. And I hope that you can take something out of it. And as we pray, you listen to what you can take out of this passage, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge together that sin is serious. You've confined certain demons to a certain place. And Jesus said, you're not getting out. Lord, we also thank you that Christ is now victorious over Satan. Christ isn't waiting to be victorious over Satan, but our Lord is now victorious over Satan. We thank you that the, the victory Jesus Christ has been given, Father, from you is a binding victory. It's a permanent victory. It's an eternal victory. It's not in the balance. It's not weighed in the scales. It's not precarious. It's not shaky. But it's a binding, permanent victory. Thank you. We thank you that Christ is our ark. And we get to go into that ark by faith his person and his work. Lord, help us not to gloat at being inside the ark. Help us to care about the lost who are floundering, unable to swim over the six miles of water northeast of Providence Island, New Providence. Lord, help us not to be discouraged. But Lord, when we are, may we cry from our heart's depth, Hallelujah! Victory in Jesus. Bless this dear congregation, Lord. Help us to walk worthy of our calling as victors in Christ. For we pray this in Jesus' precious name and God's victor said, amen.